We are beginning a new series with this Sabbath. Instead of dealing with Ellen White, we are going to begin working through the Bible and the issue of atonement and the meaning of Jesus' death. And this is because uh, this, this is a very important teaching for the entire church. And I mean that inclusively Christian church. Uh, because it formulates our picture of God. It determines how we relate to him and how we live our lives, and to a great extent. And more than that, right now, the Christian community is in an uproar over uh, hell, over the nature of the atonement and what it means and whether Jesus died to appease an angry God or, or what have you. And so this is a very timely presentation. And since we are online, other people anywhere, anytime can listen in to our conversations together and hopefully be blessed. So I have some new handouts. And what we're going to begin today, uh, we're going to begin kind of at the beginning. And we may move a little slowly at first, and then we'll get to barreling along. First of all, I'd like to begin with principles of biblical interpretation. And we, we dealt with this before, but I don't think it hurts to over and over again review this because it's so easy to forget uh, what these principles are. And these are, this is much smaller than when we started the first time. So I'm, I'm getting simpler. So let's look at these. And instead of having you read, I think I'll go ahead and read, and that way there'll be kind of a continuity, and we can, I think, move a little faster. Uh, the first one, and, and, and it's foundational to all the others, is that the Bible is inspired by God, who inspired the people who wrote it, not the words. The words are not God's words. They're human words. And that's very foundational to understanding the Bible. The Bible was not dictated by God, but human writers wrote the thoughts given them by the Holy Spirit in their own words. Everything that is human is imperfect. This is the belief of the church that we, church tradition that we believe in. Uh, the Seventh Adventist Church does believe this, and it's in our doctrinal statement. So, that means when we come to words like atone and when we come to words uh, like wrath or justice, all the words that surround the issue of atonement, we're dealing with human language. And in order to understand the message that God wants to convey through those words, we have to let the Bible interpret itself. So let's move on and see how this works out. Since the language, number two, was not directed by God, it is important not to assume merely human meanings behind the words. Lexicons, dictionaries, helpful though they are, are not adequate to explain the meanings of words that involve God and his ways. Now, that if we just ended there, we would be kind of stuck. Where do we go from here if we can't rely on, on lexicons and dictionaries? And believe me, I do a lot of lexicographical studies and dictionary studies and concordant studies of words. Okay, I, I didn't finish number two. And number two, I should have written this down. In order 
to understand the meaning of a word in Scripture as Scripture. If we were treating the Bible like any other book, we could just consult a dictionary and be done with it. But in order to interpret the Bible according to its own dictionary, internal dictionary, we have to look for the biblical definition of the words. Are there defining passages that help us know what those words mean? Or are there passages that are keys to help us interpret other passages that are difficult? So that's the important thing. And uh, so you might want to make a mental note or jot it down here as an addition to this. Number three, no one passage of Scripture contains the entire truth about God. And that's something we tend to forget. We will sit on a single passage and, and make it kind of cover everything. We overgeneralize a lot of times with the Bible. Uh, but no one passage has the whole truth about God. Uh, the Bible must be read as a whole and passage compared with passage to find the truth. And this is where I come to key passages. That is, passages that help define or describe the meanings of words enable the reader to unlock difficult portions of the Bible to harmonize them with the broad principled statements the Bible makes about God. So this is this is the method I use in attempting to, for example, interpret the word atone, or for example, to interpret the word wrath. Number four, Jesus is the fullest, most complete revelation of the Father's character. Any interpretation of Scripture that contradicts this revelation is faulty. It is Satan who has misrepresented God as arbitrary and forgiving, vengeful and severe. Any interpretation of a passage of Scripture that God that makes God appear in this way gives credence to Satan's lies about him. So, these, I'm, I'm giving you some some principles kind of to to hold on to as we begin a journey through the Bible that sometimes is difficult because of the wording and the language. Number six, all contexts, literary, social, relational, should be considered when interpreting a passage or a word in the Bible. These provide meaning that a simple lexical approach does not. So we will be looking at all the words that we study, all the concepts that we study in relationship to the atonement. We will be looking at them in relationship to the ancient Near East, particularly Mesopotamia. And at, at the end of every st- biblical study, I will then say, okay, how, does, how do the Babylonians look at this? And we will be examining that in light of Babylonia, uh, which is something that I know that members of this class who have been waiting for this for like a year <laughs> has long for, and we are now going to begin. Uh, number seven, when discussing divorce, Jesus pointed out that Moses allowed divorce because of the stiffness of people's necks and their hardness of heart, but that in the beginning it was not so. The hermeneutic principle he uses here suggests that some portions of the Bible reflect God's ideal perfect will, while others reflect his permissive will adapted to the will of the people. It is important, then, always to keep in mind which passage belongs to which voice. This is a fairly new uh, methodology. Jonathan is well indoctrinated in it Mm -hmm. from being in Books of Moses. 
all all the students who took classes from me in in uh, Old Testament starting last autumn have been subjected to this. But if you took a class from me before that, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hadn't gotten there yet. But uh, this is becoming a very important way of ferreting out the truth in the Old Testament. Because uh, the permissive will voice, which is the minor voice, that is it's the most infrequent voice of the Old Testament, becomes major to some extent in the new, in Jesus. So uh, we want to keep these in mind. Okay, that's, that's just preamble. Now, there's another part of the preamble. I want, this is, comes from a story that I have to tell on myself. I was raised into an Adventist church that in the 1960s was extremely rigid and legalistic. I don't know how many of you have parents who were raised during the 60s. I mean, they grew up during the 60s. You do. My dad. You do. Uh, did they, have they ever told you about what it was like growing yeah, up in the 1960s? Oh, okay, he grew up Catholic, so he was spared. He, he had a different set of legalism to deal with. My mother was mainly raised by her um, grandparents at that time. And as her parents were working and he was her grandfather was a pastor and he wasn't all that legalistic actually so so you, your parents were spared yeah. <laughs> okay um, well that's good i grew up in the northwest and the northwest in the 60s was extremely that way I, although i suppose there are po- were pockets where it wasn't but i grew up in the shadow of an adventist academy a boarding academy mm-hmm. And boarding academies during the 60s and 70s were very rigid. And uh, my parents believed keeping the rules. God saved you if you kept the rules. Uh, My brother lay awake at night worrying that when Jesus came, I would be saved. That is, his little sister would be saved, and he wouldn't. Because he was a normal, all-American kid who got himself in trouble frequently. He was hyperactive. (laughs) And I was uh, the opposite, Uh, phlegmatic like my father, uh, blessed with Asperger's, so not given to talking a whole lot, and um, not rambunctious at all. I was laid back and kind of studious from the get-go. So I was the good little girl, and he was the bad little boy. That's how he saw it. And consequently, he is no longer a Seventh-day Adventist today. And that was partly because of what we were taught in Sabbath school about the investigative judgment. Well, I, I became a very ardent legalist by the time I was 14. I had heard snatches of the view of God that I now hold, but it, it hadn't penetrated my psyche or changed my life in any way. And by the time I was 14, I was the best critic of all sinners in Zion that you can imagine. Um, I sat with my girlfriend during a camp meeting the summer I was 14, and I criticized roundly everybody that came by. Uh, that Her dress is too short, and his, his hair is too long, and this was the 70s, you understand. And anybody that looked anything like a hippie was... <laughs> bad. <laughs> and so that was, that was where I was. 
I was critical, I was cold, I was apathetic. And I, the way I viewed salvation was I kept the rules and God got me into heaven. And that was the extent of our relationship. There was no relationship. Now, I knew I was supposed to surrender my life to God. And so I did that uh, religiously. But I'd always kind of take a deep breath and kind of force myself to say the words because in my heart I was not giving myself to God. I didn't trust him. But I didn't recognize that I didn't trust him. Well, God decided it was time to act in my life. And since my mother had dedicated me to him before I was born, he had permission to do that. And he began to remind me of a week of prayer speaker who held the picture of God that we hold, that I had heard say, all you have to do is love God. If you love God, you will keep his commandments and all the rest will follow. But what I really, what really zeroed in on me was the thought that I had to love God. So that became commandment number 11, right? (laughs) Not only did I not have other gods before him and, and not worship any graven images and not take his name in vain, I had to love him. And I didn't. And I knew I didn't. And I didn't know what to do except to pray that I would begin to love him. So I, I started praying, dear God, help me to love you. Can you imagine telling your mom or your dad, would you please help me to love you? (laughs) I just think of what that must have meant to my father. But maybe he was jubilant that I was at least asking for it. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. And finally, one day, I started getting angry with God. You know, he wasn't answering my prayer, and didn't he answer children's prayers? Uh, Uncle Arthur said so. Uh, (laughs) So I... One day fell, a sermon fell into my hands by Morris Venden in which he said, you can't love someone you don't know and the way to know God is to, to read about him and his word. And he recommended spending half an hour a day with Desire of Ages reading on the life of Christ. Well, now that was a, a rule I could keep. Okay, So I got my alarm clock out and I set it where I could see it and I got Desire of Ages, which I did have a copy, and I began to read Desire of Ages, and I looked at the clock, and I read Desire of Ages, and I looked at the clock. That was the longest half an hour, and I didn't love God anymore. So I was beginning to get really desperate, and to make a long story short, one night, I decided to preach, practice preaching. It was something I did before I went to sleep on, on occasion. I wanted to preach someday. Uh, I had that ambition since I was nine. And so this particular night, I decided I wanted to really move my audience to surrender to God. And based on sermons I had heard and, and so forth, I decided I was going to take the story of the great controversy and take it from God himself uh, trying to save the planet and really talk about the love of God. And so I did. I began to tell those Old Testament stories with God trying to do everything possible to save people and them rejecting him. And, and finally God comes down here himself in, and becomes a man. And I began to follow the life of Jesus. And somewhere in the life of Jesus, as I got close to Gethsemane, the story became real and I became there. And I began to follow that story uh, and, and I made it to the cross in time to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And my world caved in. 
and I realized a God that loved me that much, that would go to such lengths, was a God I could trust. My whole life was transformed. Some weeks after that, I reasoned that if God was 100% love, as the Bible said, he could not destroy the wicked at the end because that would not be loving. Once everything had been said and done and, and every choice had been made, to destroy people was really to act the part of a tyrant. And if God was love, he wasn't a tyrant. And so I came to believe that it had to be that God did not destroy the wicked. It must be natural consequences. And I remember thinking, well, where would I find that in the Bible or Ellen White? Wouldn't be happen. I was convinced. Actually, at that time in my life, I didn't think Ellen White worshipped a loving God mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the way I was raised <laughs> to see her. So I was reading, still reading Desire of Ages, right? <laughs> and I came to the chapter, It is Finished, and I read page 764. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God, speaking of the death of the wicked. Sinners reap that which they have sown. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all his sympathizers place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Meaning it is natural consequences. They receive the results of their own choice. This is a line I, I left out in my quoting. I was jubilant. It's like, by this time I was 15. I had had a birthday. And I was, I was completely sold. I had a Bible teacher that year who taught the same truths about God that I was now holding. And so for a whole year I just had this wonderful basking experience with God. And then the teacher moved away. My best friend moved away. And my best adult friend moved away. And I felt very abandoned and alone. And in that vacuum, the old picture of God rose up and said, wait a minute, how do you know this is true? And I started looking at places that said that God was angry, and I went, maybe I'm wrong. And I began a nine-year struggle with how to interpret the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. This, what we're doing now, is kind of out of that struggle. And it came to me one day, and this is, this is number eight, Principles of Biblical Interpretation. It, claimed to, it came to me one day that there were plain statements in the Bible and in the writings of Ellen White that could not, you could not interpret them any other way, unless you fudged, unless you were a little, a, a dishonest with them. They were plain and clear and beautiful, loving statements about God and his character. And I began to realize that the other statements were not as clear. The statements about his wrath, the statements about judgment, the statement, all those statements that, that made me feel that God was less than 100% love uh, were not as clear. And I began to develop this criteria in my mind. The plain statements govern the statements that are not so clear. I have a list here of plain statements about God. And one of the things I've, I've done with students who have struggled, as I struggled, I have suggested you need to believe these statements before you tackle all the difficult ones. So I'm, I'm going to challenge you 
Uh, I know that that doesn't come instantly. But this is a sheet to go to, run to, (laughs) when we get overwhelmed by language in the Old Testament, for example. So Genesis 1.31, everything God made was very good. God didn't make anything bad. He didn't make anything harmful. He didn't make anything evil. Everything was very good. Uh, let's look at Genesis 15.6. This is in the context of the first covenant God makes with Abram. Okay, uh, Would somebody like to read? When it comes to the Bible, we will read. 15 or 6? Why don't we start with you? That's where we usually go around the table. Uh, Start with verse 1 and read through verse 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Thank you. My version says for verse 6, Abram trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. Uh, I, like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I like it a lot better. So this is this is the covenant of trust. Everything that God wants from us is trust. That's paramount. So that's a plain statement about trust. And of course, in Romans, Paul reiterates that. Actually, um, let's uh, turn to Romans three, and this is on the back side. Romans three. Um, let's let's talk. Let's start with verse twenty-seven. And why don't you read for us if you're willing? Uh, start with verse twenty-seven and read through verse thirty-one. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we concluded that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Okay, so... What we have here is a statement about righteousness by faith. Now, unfortunately, this word faith has been abused by Christianity. We have divorced it from the Old Testament roots 
of what faith really meant. Faith in the Old Testament is a relational word that means to trust. In fact, the verb form that is used for trust in Hebrew is a verb form that is causative, which means that trust is dependent on the trustworthiness of the person you trust in. Okay. So when someone trusts God, it means they have found him to be trustworthy. That's in, embedded in the term. Uh, they trust him because they found him to be trustworthy. Uh, and that's what lies behind Paul's use of faith, is that Hebrew understanding. Because Paul was a Jew, he read the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's true he used the Septuagint version because he was writing for Gentiles most of the time. Uh, and they knew Greek. And the Septuagint was the Greek Old Testament. But he did know Hebrew. And he did know that Hebrew meaning. So I don't think we should really translate it as faith. The word pistis can mean trust. It can mean belief. It can mean faith. But it can mean trust. And I think that trust is what Paul is really uh, talking about. Which means to, which is to say that God values more than anything else our trust. And that makes sense if we understand that the sin problem began with lies about God that caused us to distrust him. So it, God is seeking to win us back to win our trust. Okay, let's move back over here and to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Um, why don't we start with... Well, let's, let me just reiterate the background of this story. You remember that after the golden calf incident, Moses is very troubled. Uh, he, God seemed to be so angry. And he now has questions about God's character. And so he goes up to, he goes to God and he says, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. That word goodness can mean totality of character. Uh, I will make my character pass before you. In fact, I think that's the, the way the New English Bible translated it. Um, so, Now we come to when God does show his glory. Let's start with verse 5 and read through verse 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I like your version. It's it's more literal. I have punish in mine. How, How many of you have punish in your version for punishing the iniquities? You all have visiting? Does anybody have the NIV? Nobody has the NIV. That's amazing. Have a, a bunch of college students without the NIV. <laughs> that seems to be the standard Adventist Bible these days. Um, the NIV has to punish. I'm using the Common English Bible, which has to punish. The word in Hebrew 
in its cognate and Akkadian, never means to punish. And the reason some have felt it means to punish is because to visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children seems to be to punish the children for the father's sins. The problem with that is there's a text in Deuteronomy that says the son shall not suffer for the sins of the father. And Ezekiel takes that up in Ezekiel 18 and also 33 and says very resoundingly, no, the son does not suffer for the sins of the father or the father for the sins of the son. Uh, Everybody suffers their own consequences of their own sin. So either the verse is a contradiction or we need to make something different of it. And and so my suggestion to you is, given the range of nuances of this word, is that this word means administering the consequences of sin from generation to generation as it works out in heredity, as it works out in uh, social conditioning, so that God is actually limiting the consequences of sin to the third and fourth generation. And what is interesting is there's a study uh, done by psychologists on in, uh, chi- uh, child pedophilia by, by adults, particularly by parents, to their children. Uh, a child who is, who is the victim of molestation by another person will grow up, unless he takes concerted measures to avoid it, he will grow up to be a pedophile. Most pedophiles were molested as children. And what the study shows is that in the generations of pedophilia, where you have a father uh, molesting his child and the child growing up to molesting his child, the cycle is broken at the third and fourth generation. Now, in the Ten Commandments, this same statement is made with the caveat in showing mercy to thousands, forgiving iniquity trans... No, showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. That is, anyone who responds to the love of God at any generation can break that cycle. Yes, yes, it is there. It's just before instead of after. Yeah, that's good. So what I think we have is a very definitive statement here about God's character. Sin does reap its consequences, but it does, we don't have to make it seem that God is the one doing it. Rather, he is allowing the consequences from generation to generation. Okay, let's move now to Isaiah 40, 10, and 11. I can't resist. I want to read this one. My version has it beautifully done. Here is the Lord God coming with strength, with a triumphant arm, bringing his reward with him and his payment before him. Like a shepherd, God will tend the flock. He will gather lambs in his arms and lift them onto his lap. He will gently guide the nursing ewes. That's a very gentle picture of God. If God comes with strength and he's that gentle in his strength, then what in the world do we do with all the texts that say he gets angry? You see, that's, that's, uh, 
this is something we need to keep in mind. And we have to say, however we interpret the Bible, it has to harmonize. Otherwise, our, our interpretation is faulty. Uh, Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. The Lord says to his people, Can a woman forget the baby she feeds at her at her breast? Will she not have compassion for the new life that has to has come from her womb? Yes, it's possible that she may forget or abandon her offspring, but I will never forget or abandon you. You are mine. Yeah. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how can I forget you? I have engraved your name on the palms of my hands. You are always in my thoughts. How can I forget you? What version is that? Clear word, okay. <laughs> to say we're all those extra words here. <laughs> okay, um, Isaiah fifty-five and verses six to nine. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their way, and and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that He may have mercy on them. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Okay, uh, and then um, notice notice how God's thoughts are higher than ours in the context of forgiveness. Now, I, I I've heard it said that the reason we don't want to take God seriously when He gets mad is because you know we are human. And we aren't like God. That implies we don't get angry, but God does. <laughs> Which I don't think is true. I think we get plenty angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're more likely to struggle with anger than we are, or, or maybe we are more likely to get angry than we are to forgive. And that's why uh, it is more godlike to forgive than to get angry. As a, the Bible makes it very clear over and over again. God is slow to anger. Okay. Um, Isaiah 57, verses 14 and 15. And shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth Eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So, the high and holy place is the lowly place, the humble place. So, one thing we can say about God's wrath is that when He gets angry, He is not high-handed he is not proud he is not self-serving he is in a meek state of mind he is humble and that definitely changes the the substance of anger when you put all those qualities with it okay ezekiel 18 19 and 20 this is one i think i referred to earlier Ezekiel eighteen nineteen and 20 says, Yet you say, Why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father? 
When the son has done what is lawful and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The person who sins shall die. A child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. So this this principle that we read in Exodus uh, 34, 6, and 7 does not mean that the son or the daughter will suffer for the parent's sins. Uh, God does not punish the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He does not punish the children for the iniquity of the fathers. That's not what that text is saying. And I, I think for that reason it shouldn't be punished. Now, look at Exodus 23, 30, and 31. Exodus 18, I'm sorry, verses 23, and I'll go ahead and read this. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God? Certainly not. If they change their ways, they will live. And then 30 to 31. Therefore, I will judge each of you according to your ways, house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. Turn, turn away from all your sins. Don't let them become obstacles for you. Abandon all of your sins. Make yourselves a new heart and a right spirit. For why should you die, house of Israel? I certainly don't want anyone to die. This is what the Lord God says. Change your ways and live. Uh, the RSV says, uh, turn away from your sins or iniquity will be your ruin. Meaning that the consequences are in the sin, not in the in God, not God doing it. Okay, Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 20, and I'll let you go ahead and read. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the balls and uh, bowels, um, and they shall be remembered by the, their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword, bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Note verses 16, actually just uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, keep in mind that the word Lord there is not re- in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh is uh, built on the form of the verb to be. And so it means one who is self-existent and one who is always who he is. 
in that day, says Yahweh, you will call me my husband. The word he in Hebrew here is ish. And you will no longer call me my Lord or my master. The word there is Baal. And uh, Bianca's heard this before, but uh, Baal is the term, the legal term for husband as a master or owner of his wife. And it's also the title of a deity in the Canaanite cult, uh, religions. So what God is saying, I do the reason, one of the reasons I do not want you to worship the balls is because it lowers your conception of me. You see them as their master, as, as your um, owner, as, as and yourselves. You see yourselves as just objects to be owned and used. But I want to be your ish, and ish is a term of equality. Ish and isha are husband and wife. Now, they're not related terms, even though they sound alike. But when you hear them together and the way they're used, they're always used in terms of equality. So God is wanting to lift us up into friendship with him, not have us see him as His our master. Uh, so this is a, a very high level, high note uh, in the Old Testament. Okay, Hosea 11, 1 to 9, and I think we'll have to close with this one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours them because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is, uh, that last verse is a little difficult in the Hebrew, but the, the message seems to be very clearly what your version, what our versions have, uh, from the context. Note here that God's holiness veers away from destruction from destroying people um, and, and away from anger because he's not human. And, and this is contrary to what a lot of theologians teach about the atonement, that God's holiness, in God's holiness, he had to uphold his justice and he had to demand the blood of his son to satisfy his justice or appease him in his wrath. Um, they view holiness as destructive, as as God's destructive nature against sin, and they view love as uh, not in harmony with holiness. But this passage suggests the opposite. 
that God's holiness is his love and that it does not seek to destroy but to be safe. That, uh, we're going to have to end on that note. We will next time finish this sheet quickly. And then what we're going to do is begin working through the Old Testament and, and the New Testament in God's wrath. Um, because before we can even understand why Jesus had to die, we have to settle this question on God's wrath. What is God's wrath? Uh, what does it mean? Uh, it's very, very foundational, I think. So we will be spending a fair amount of time. Probably we won't get done this quarter because we only have two more Sabbaths uh, to meet together. Uh, but we probably will get done early winter quarter with that part of the study, and then we'll move on to more of the heart of atonement. Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we, we thank you for the clear scriptures that portray you as a God who wants to be our friend, who wants to heal and save us, not destroy us. A God who takes no pleasure in the death of those who die. And a God who is full of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. We ask that we will keep this bright picture of you that comes to us from the Old Testament ever before us and that we will recognize that what you want more than anything else from us is our trust. May we come to see you fully as a trustworthy God so that we can live in harmony with your presence. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.